Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. You're listening to Stories with Sapphire. I am Sapphire Sandalo. Now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time. This episode contains stories involving the death of beloved animals. As I mentioned before, I had to put down my dog Zisu this past September. Then a week later, I went out of town to film a new project for six weeks. On one hand, it made it easier to not be surrounded by his memory. On the other, I felt incredibly alone in an unfamiliar city away from everyone I knew. It hurt that I couldn't be there when Zisu's ashes were returned to us. I had a really difficult time sleeping when I was in my hotel room. As embarrassing as it is to admit, as a full-grown adult, I slept with the lights on every night. I was so used to having my husband and dogs in bed with me while I slept, and I had forgotten how afraid I was to sleep alone in total silence and darkness. That first week, though, I had two incredibly vivid dreams. In the first one, it was the day I had to put Zisu down, and I held him tight and gave him a million head kisses and soaked in his scent. The dream ended before I actually had to go through with all of it again. The second dream I had, I was back at home, and the doctor called us to tell us that Zisu was actually still alive, and they'd be bringing him back home. Again, I got to hold his small, stinky little three-legged body. I've heard plenty of stories of people having crystal clear dreams of loved ones visiting them after they passed, but I don't think that's what these were. I'm pretty sure it was just my grief manifesting itself. It was, however, really nice to feel Zisu in my arms again. As the weeks went on, it got a little easier. He'd still come up in my mind, but I wouldn't break down into tears immediately. Work was able to successfully distract me. For a while. About four or five weeks into the trip, the distraction wore off. I was now incredibly homesick, and when I remembered that being home didn't mean seeing Zisu again, it just tore me up inside. One morning, I was feeling particularly low. When I got to set... One of the crew members was wearing a shirt with an interesting graphic. It was a guy with a red beanie riding a shark with spots. I asked her what that was from, and she said it was from the movie The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. So I adopted Zissou when he was around five from a family who'd had him since he was a puppy. They were the ones who named him Zissou. After that movie, which, even after all these years, I still haven't seen. 
Hearing his name come out of her mouth at that moment completely caught me off guard. Of all the shirts she could have worn, of all the days she could have worn it. Then the very next day, in between takes, I overheard someone on the crew say, Hey, you look like Steve Zissou. I looked over, and one of the cameramen was wearing a red beanie. Two days in a row, I heard Zisu's name on set. It could easily have been a very wild coincidence, but what a comforting coincidence it was. In this week's episode, I'll be sharing true stories about our relationship with non-human species, physical animals or otherwise. First, I share the experiences of a teenager who has the ability to see animal auras attached to people. Then I speak with Amy Dalton, who had a mysterious, fuzzy visitor as a child. And finally, I narrate the story of a young adult who formed an everlasting bond with a lion. Chapter 1. Animal Auras. Submitted by Aurora. My family is somewhat sensitive to many different spiritual entities, and although they refuse to talk about it, they have all seen or experienced something otherworldly. My family has always been somewhat odd, at least my mom's side of the family. My father left when I was little. I still see him, but he lives far away now, and I don't think me and my sister were a priority for him. I always felt like I was never alone, like someone was with me all the time. My mother, being Catholic, said that it was because we are never alone and God is always with us. But that never made me feel comfortable being alone, especially since the animals were never with me when I was alone. So let me explain. When I'm with people, I see animals floating around them. They float around the person they choose to be with and are translucent with different color hues radiating from them. I would say it's a spirit animal, but I don't think that's what they are. So I just call them animal auras. The animals seem to share the same characteristics as the person around them. For example, a classmate of mine had a large gorilla that was stoic and loud, while my classmate was very tall and serious. The animals seemed to interact with other animals that were attached to other people as well. It was amazing. I thought everyone saw what I saw. So I asked my mom about the animals that were close to people. I was maybe 10 when I asked her. Oh, you mean pets, she would say. No, 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 I mean the pretty ones, not the ones I can touch. She seemed alarmed by this, but never asked about it again. My grandma then talked about it with me. She said that they have all seen different things. One of my aunts would see flowers blooming from the floor in her room, and her and her twin sister would have conversations in their sleep that would last for hours. Even my mother feels things touching her in her sleep. My grandma hears people dancing in her house and singing around the halls. She told me to ignore them and not to tell anyone, because they may think I'm schizophrenic. So I listened to her and just enjoyed the animals I saw. Sixth grade came, and I was still ignoring the animals. I would still see them, but decided not to point them out to anyone anymore. A friend of mine, we'll call her 
Amy, had walked into the classroom. She'd always been this bubbly person, always laughing and making jokes. She was a little ray of sunshine. I was so shocked. Her previous animal, a chinchilla, wasn't with her. Instead, there was a vulture with a dark red hue, a large, deteriorating vulture with eyes bulging from its head. Its beak looked sewed on and chipped at the edges, and its bones were visible at the ends of the wings. I was terrified. Amy walked over and asked if I was okay, but all I could do was look behind her, at that bird, if you can even call it that. I told her I was fine and sat down for class. I couldn't focus at all the entire period. The teacher's voice sounded so far away from me. All I could think about was that damn bird. I write in my journal every possible animal I had seen, and I realized I had seen a vulture before. It didn't look like that, though. I tried to remember who had that vulture. Why does Amy now have this one? Then the bell rang. I tried my best to stay away from her. Then I realized the other animals were avoiding her, too. They would all cower in fear and hide behind their attached person. That's when it hit me. My dad. He had a vulture. I hadn't seen him in years, so I don't know if the vulture is even still there. Amy looked at me. What's wrong with you today? Are you sick or something? What? No, I'm okay. I responded. But was she okay? The school day ended, and I went home. I started thinking about every animal I'd seen that day. An otter, a panda cub, my sister's lemur, the vulture. It didn't make sense. That vulture was nothing like her. Why was it with her? Two years have passed, and me and her are still in the same friend group, but we've grown apart. She barely looks at me or addresses me anymore, and she still has that vulture. I never look at it too closely. It always grossed me out. I guess two years of not paying attention to it gave me the courage to finally look at it again. It had grown, grown to her size. It was just at her knees before. How did it get so big? What's worse is that it was even more broken now. One eye was missing, and the other hung loosely out of its socket. The bottom half of the beak was gone, leaving its long tongue to hang off the hole. I was frozen with fear and disgust. I thought I was going to throw up. But if I made a scene, that would only make things worse. So I sat there, staring at that thing and its attached person, Amy. I moved school soon after that and never had to see Amy again. My other friends still talk about her, though, and how she's become a toxic and aggressive person. She even attacked a friend of mine. It was so bad that my friend had to go to the hospital. I was glad to be away from that bird, but scared that someone, something like that exists now. It's been two years, and I'm now in high school. I saw her name on the local news the other day. She was involved in a stabbing incident at her school. Apparently, this girl she knew saw her brandishing a knife, and when she confronted her, 
Amy stabbed her in the stomach. She then pushed her onto the road in front of a school bus, which ran the girl over. The impact killed her, and Amy ran away. I'm just glad I left while I had the chance. Throughout history, humans have used animals as important parts of storytelling, from folklore and fairy tales, even today in Disney movies. Animals represent different traits and values, and we can learn many lessons from observing them. So it's really fascinating that Aurora is able to see these traits appear as animals. This is something I'd never heard of before, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are many others who can also see these animals. I wonder if our animal auras reflect who we are at the moment, or if they influence us. Maybe it's a little of both. What type of animal do you think might be attached to you right now? Is it a happy, easygoing dolphin? Maybe a strong, powerful lion? Or a perceptive cat? Take a moment to think about it, and whether it's an animal you want representing you right now. I'm sure it's never too late to change it. Chapter 2. The Elmo Hand. Um, okay, so my name is Amy Dalton, and I currently am in Ohio um, on the ancestral lands of the Shawnee, Miami, Wyandotte, and Delaware nations. I found Amy on Instagram when I was searching Filipinos and spirituality. If you are Filipino and have an internet presence, trust that I will find you. My relationship to the spiritual world um has been all my life is ongoing has i've always had a supernatural connection with the spiritual world ever since i was younger one of my very first paranormal experiences was when i was about maybe 4 or 5 and i would stay up late at night i just wasn't sleepy I had a nightlight so I could kind of see in my room. I was an only child, but I had a bunk bed. And I slept on the bottom bunk and I kept all my stuffies, you know, all my favorite stuffies and stuffed animals on the top bunk. And my um, the one side of my bunk bed was up against the wall. So sometimes I could like reach up to the top bunk and like pull one of my favorite stuffed animals down because there's like a little bit of a crack. So... I remember I was just trying to get to sleep and I turned over in my bunk bed and I faced towards the wall and a stuffed animal hand came down and it was an Elmo hand. I knew I did not have an Elmo stuffy. So it like came down like this and it waved at me and I was like, that's weird. So I went out to try to touch it (laughs) and it immediately like shot up like it didn't let me touch it so it like went back so me I'm like oh my gosh what was that so I get up out of the bed and I like go up to the top bunk to look I'm like where is it and but there was no stuffed animal that looked like that no stuffy that looked like that 
keep saying Elmo hand because remember Sesame Street back in the day, they would show like the little puppets and sometimes it would be like a little, like a little Elmo hand, right? It was red, it was fluffy, but it was kind of like limp, like somebody had to like move it. And so that's, that's exactly how it moved is like somebody was like moving it and it was the exact color and it was the exact fuzz that I saw but I knew I didn't have an Elmo doll because that wasn't my favorite I wasn't I watched Sesame Street but I didn't have any of their like stuffed animals or characters so I knew when immediately when I saw it, it was really odd and I I was trying to like even now I remember as a kid scrolling back going well did any of my friends leave that there It's the short and simple stories like this that stick with me the most. I think about this Elmo hand constantly. What the hell was that thing? Why did it look like Elmo? And what did it want with Imi? So looking back, what I think was going on when I saw specifically the Elmo hand was that there was an energy, an entity, maybe wanting to play. Because I didn't, I, I mean, as a kid, you know what fear is, right? It's not like I di- I wasn't a fearful child at all. It wasn't like I didn't know what fear was. But when I saw that, I wasn't afraid. I wanted to play. Like, I was like, oh, okay. You know, so maybe looking back now, if I had to really think about it, maybe that's what that's what that was. The way it pulled its hand away when Aimee reached out to touch it, and how it disappeared when Aimee climbed up to the top bunk, it does kind of feel like someone playfully interacting with a child. That actually wasn't the only night when Aimee saw something in her room that seemed to want to play with her. Again, I was laying in bed, the nightlight was on, and I looked over to my closet and I had sliding doors on my closet like this. And my my closet door opened up like it slid open a little bit. And I remember like a shadow of a head like popped out a little bit and a hand uh, kind of peeked out like that. And again, I don't know. I didn't know enough to be scared. I don't know why I wasn't scared. So I was like, oh, hey, (laughs) who is that? So I got up. My five-year-old ass got up. I go over to the closet and I look in and there was nobody there. So I just went back to sleep. I wonder if these two memories were actually with the same entity. Maybe it took on the appearance of a puppet at first because it knew Aimee would respond positively to it. And then it slowly revealed more of its true self to Aimee to see how she'd respond, like it was testing her. But Aimee never had the opportunity to fully interact with whatever it was, because she closed herself off to that ability. I grew up in a very evangelical uh, background for most of my life. And I remember I would tell my mom these things, and then she would start telling me that those aren't real. Oh, those those aren't real. Those things aren't real. Those are your imagination. And so I taught myself not to see them, but instead of seeing them, I felt them and then I felt crazy because then I was like, no, that's your imagination, right? Or if they are real, that they're not from Jesus. So therefore, they're scary, they're evil, they're bad, they're probably from the devil. So like I said, I think I learned how to, I taught myself not to see those things anymore. 
Closing off this ability changed the brave and inquisitive young Aimi into a more fearful child. I started to fear it. So a lot of fear crept into my life surrounding spiritual things. And if I didn't understand it, then it was something to be feared, right? If I couldn't find it in a book, if I couldn't find it in the Bible, if I couldn't theologically place it in a view, in a theological viewpoint, then it is something that should be feared. So I feel like that definitely affected me both spiritually and then in just how I lived my life, just like in the essence of like how I interacted with the world. I, you know, you start being fearful of everything that you don't know. Right. And so I started to become a pretty fearful child. I I became really shy and I became scared of the dark. I became nervous of a lot of things, honestly, too, like it took away all the magic in the world. Though I think that those two memories are the ones that really stuck with me because I wasn't scared and I felt a sense of playfulness and just like a curiosity and knowing that I was safe and that I could interact and get up and go to my closet and know that I wasn't going to be hurt or anything, right? And so that felt magical. But once once it's like bad or once it's just your imagination, all that sense of magic, all that sense of mystery and wonder of the world kind of get, for me personally, just got sucked out of my life. And growing up and then coming out from under the church's roof has been a process of reincorporating like the wonder and the magic and then also knowing what spiritual power that I have, that I hold. Reclaiming this ability and recontextualizing her experiences has empowered Aimee as an adult. So I, I, I was deep in it. I was about to be a pastor. I led worship for a church of a thousand. Like I was deep. I was deep in it. Then I started questioning things because I was studying theologically. I was studying Greek and Hebrew. And some of the things that I was taught to believe I was going, wait, that's not necessarily true based on context, based on the original Greek and Hebrew. So that was kind of a string that started to unravel, 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 unravel. I think one of the things I'd I'd want people to know is, yeah, this is spooky, but also... You is spooky too, meaning like you you can you can go boo <laughs> and step into your own spiritual power and just get in touch with your guides. Like once I started getting in touch with the ancestors and understood like, wow, how protected I have been my whole life. I had nothing ever to fear, ever. I am always protected. I am always held. I am always safe. I'm always loved in the physical, in the non-physical. And so if I'm rolling deep with these ancestors, like if there are things that are scary spiritually, supernaturally, paranormally, that, that I am allowed and I am supported by entities, by energies, by ancestors, by higher selves, to be able to set boundaries for me and for my family and say, no, you can't hurt me. You can't scare me. You're not allowed to bully me. Stop bullying my kids. You're not allowed to do that either. So as creeped out as I am by the Elmo hand, I think it was ultimately there to help Aimee on her spiritual journey. It was nudging her to embrace her curiosity for the unknown. 
What are some moments in your life, instigated by a non-human, that played a huge role in crafting the person you are today? Pay a visit to Aimee's store, Mayari Moon Apothecary, where you can get ritual oil, body butter, and more. Links are in the show notes. Before I became a podcaster and paranormal investigator, I used to be a full-time animator and character designer, and podcasts kept me company while I drew, especially paranormal podcasts. One of my favorites was Jim Harold's Campfire. I would actually be shocked if you hadn't heard of it because it's one of the OGs. In fact, it recently celebrated its 13th anniversary. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a call-in show where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Jim every week. The story topics range from ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and stories that can't be categorized. You're listening to my show right now, so I know that you love non-fictional paranormal stories. Stories involving the serial killer Ted Bundy, or a man who owned a haunted hotel. And also heartwarming stories of deceased loved ones coming back to say hello. Jim Harold's Campfire was a huge inspiration for me. So do me a personal favor and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Stories with Sapphire. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Chapter 3. Kisumbu. Submitted by Chrysanthi. Hey Sapphire, I love your channel and podcast and have really wanted to share this true story of mine for a long time. It's something that brings me a lot of comfort and I hope it will for you as well. I have always been obsessed with animals. From the time I was a little girl, I particularly loved big cats, lions to be extra specific. I knew early on that I wanted to work with them for the rest of my life and protect them in any way that I could. So no one in my family was surprised when I graduated from college and got an internship working at a highly respected zoo and conservation center. This sanctuary was well known for taking in injured or abandoned animals that could no longer return to the wild and giving them a home on their hundreds of acres plots of land where they could roam as freely as possible. I was definitely in my element there. My coworkers were friendly, my boss was fair, and after about six months of working, I finally got assigned my dream case. There were three orphaned lion cubs that were due to arrive at the sanctuary from out of state. They were rescued from a terrible roadside circus where they were kept chained to a wall 24-7 and forced to rely on humans for their every need. They were on the mend from their original condition, but still sickly, and had a lot of health problems from their previous situation. When they arrived, and I got to see them for the first time, there was an instant spark. I know firsthand how tricky and dangerous it can be to use the word love when it comes to the relationship humans can develop with the wild animals they work with. They're 
well, wild. I know that they probably don't feel love the same way that humans do, but I couldn't deny that a connection was there. Whether they felt love or not, I can't say for certain, but there was definitely affection, happiness, and a bond that began to grow. I named them Nairobi, Mombasa, and Kisumbu, paying homage to their beautiful homeland that they would never see. I spent every day and night by their side for the first month after they came to the sanctuary. I slept in their enclosure next to them, keeping them warm and waking up every three hours on the dot to feed them and make sure they took their medicine. My family would even stop by the sanctuary gates to bring me my toothbrush and clothes since I was afraid to leave them alone for even an hour. Over time, their health improved, and each day I could see them getting stronger— I no longer had to spend the nights with them, and they were keen to explore their new environment. I taught them how to play, chasing them around, and encouraging them to wrestle with each other like they would in the wild. It filled me with joy to see them learn and grow. There are really no words to describe it. By the time they were nine months old, they were too large for anyone else in the sanctuary to handle except for me. In their eyes, I was a part of their pride almost like a mother figure. My family worried about me being in their enclosure with them, but I never felt scared. I knew they were still wild and unpredictable, but I had come to recognize every subtle movement and body language signal they used and was always careful to observe how they were feeling and what my limits were. But honestly, I don't think I've ever felt safer than when I was lying there in the grass with them, watching the trees and letting them lean into my arms in contentment. I had an especially close bond with Kasumbu, the smallest lioness of the three. She was always by my side whenever I came to visit them, and she was definitely the most affectionate towards me. I was really protective of her. In some ways, I think it was because she was the sickest of them all when they arrived. She had a lot more ailments than her sisters, and she made slower progress to heal. I was still feeding and keeping her warm long after the others had gotten strong enough to eat for themselves. She eventually managed to catch up to them, but it took her a really long time. She was always very timid, but when she heard my car pull into the parking lot, I would watch the confidence come back into her majestic form, and she would start calling out for me to come and join them. I loved them all but I don't think I'll ever love another animal the way I loved Kasumbu, which is why I was a wreck when she died. I wasn't at work when I got the call. I was actually at home visiting my parents. One of my coworkers, Annie, dialed my number. Kasumbu was sick and wasn't doing well. The vet was there and taking good care of her, but Annie knew how close I was with her and wanted to let me know. I drove straight to the sanctuary, not even caring that it was snowing, and I was probably driving a little faster than I should have been. I went in to see her and took one look at the beautiful animal who'd become one of my closest friends. I knew she didn't have much longer. I sat with her, stroking her fur and scratching behind her ears the way she liked. She looked at me once more those piercing green eyes seeming to stare straight into my soul. She looked peaceful, like my presence was all she needed to finally rest and be okay. She took her last breath there, 
with me and her siblings. I was devastated. For at least a week, I couldn't even talk about animals at all without breaking down. Everything seemed to remind me of her. I know that I can never fully compare the loss of an animal to the loss of a human, but to me, I felt like I had lost a child, a friend, a confidant. Mombasa and Nairobi were extra gentle to me in the weeks after their sister died. They took it surprisingly well, but they could definitely tell that I was still grieving. They would let me tag along with them on their morning walks and would stick close by my side as I did my chores and cleaned out parts of the enclosure. About three months after Kasumbu's passing, I had come in late at night after all the other enclosures were locked up to fix a part of the lion's fence that led out into the more forested area of their land. Mombasa and Nairobi were already asleep in their indoor den, and it was just me and my toolkit out in the brush. It was a beautiful, clear night, the sky full of stars, no clouds in sight. That's when I heard a rustle in the bushes ahead. I looked upon instinct, but didn't see anything. It was probably a squirrel. I went back to rewiring the fence post when I heard the leaves rustle again. I turned to see what was there, and I fell backward on the ground when I did. It was Kasumbu. Undeniably, unmistakably, but she seemed to have this glowing outline of light that was emanating from her, striking against the darkness and lighting up the leaves around her. She was right there in front of me, sitting between the two bushes, patiently staring at me. My eyes couldn't believe what I was seeing. My heart clenched. I was scared, but more than that, I was amazed. She was tilting her head to the side as she stared, almost like she was concerned for me and gave me an affectionate call. Kisi, I breathed, not daring to speak above a whisper. We sat in silence together for a good few minutes more, while I was just gazing in awe at her every feature, her sitting right there in front of me. She never stopped watching me, almost with a look of pride in her eyes, like she was marveling at me instead of the other way around. Then, as if a spell had been broken, she got up, turned around, and ran back behind the bushes. I instantly shot up off the ground and ran after her, desperate to see where she'd come from. The bushes were only a couple of meters away from me at most, but when I made my way through them and to the other side, Kasumbu was gone. There was nothing for miles but empty meadows and trees. The night was dark and quiet, and she had vanished into thin air. I've never believed in the paranormal. I was always a really practical person. I'd never even heard of animal ghosts before, but I cannot deny what I saw that night. There was no way it could have been one of the other lions. I checked the security cameras when I got back to the building. The sky was clear, the weather was perfect. I thought that maybe I was just seeing things. Maybe I just missed Kasumbu so much that I hallucinated her. But when I think back, there was so much detail, so much more to her visit that night than just remembering what she looked like. 
I could see the glow that radiated from her body. It lit up and cast shadows on the grass and twigs below her. And I felt a wave of calm energy wash over me that was not my own. Like someone else had thrown a warm jacket over me and I was enveloped in its comfort. Kasumbu really was there. I think that maybe she came back to check on me because she was worried about me. Maybe she could feel how sad I was and how much I missed her. Maybe she just wanted to say goodbye one last time and make sure that I was okay. And I know this sounds crazy, but that night, she looked on at me with a gaze of accomplishment, like she was proud of me, content with me. I've seen that look in their eyes before, whenever they successfully caught something or managed to win a race with each other. I don't know whether that's just me humanizing a wild animal or whether she actually was proud of me. I hope she is. It's been almost 13 years since I saw Kasumbu that night. Mombasa and Nairobi are both old lionesses now and have moved on with their own pride of other lions. Maybe one day I'll see all three of them together again. Maybe animals can walk the line between the spirit world and our world in a way that we can't. Maybe they really can come back if they need to, just to check on things. Wherever Kasumbu is now, I know she's happy, and I know I'll never forget her. Most of us don't hunt or grow our own food. We no longer read the stars but our GPS— Our daily lives no longer require direct communication with nature, which is partly why we are so drawn to animals, especially the untamed. They make us feel more connected to a time when we were also uninhibited and free. We don't speak the same language as these animals, so when we believe that there is mutual affection, it feels even more extraordinary, magical. That love transcends words. It's an energetic and spiritual exchange. I grew so much because of Zisu. He taught me patience. He reminded me that everyone is just the result of the experiences they were handed, and when you show them love and kindness, they can learn to trust again. He showed me that if you lose a limb, you can still get around, just differently. He proved that you can, in fact, teach an old dog new tricks. What valuable lessons have your non-human companions taught you? Thank you for joining me today. If you like what you heard and would like to support this independently run show, consider becoming a member of my Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash stories with Sapphire to see the different tiers and perks, like live watch parties, early access to episodes, or private tarot readings. And don't forget to subscribe to youtube.com slash sapphiresindalo, where I post an animated spooky story every other week. If you'd like to submit a story, send it to storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. Salamat and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sandalo. Music written by Sapphire Sandalo. 
Special thanks to Aurora, Aimi, and Chrysanthi. For more information on this episode and my guests, visit storieswithsapphire.com. <laughs>